um, thank you everybody for being here tonight and we look forward to uh, diving into big kids small devices so please put your hands together let's welcome Caroline Allen thank you me I mean that from the bottom of my heart because this is such an important topic to talk about and the truth is a lot of the time people don't want to talk about it as a society we do prefer to avoid the topics that evoke difficult feelings so it might evoke feelings of shame inadequacy guilt remorse worry anxiety all of those things and so we go ah, I'll leave that for another day but actually when we do that when we leave things in the shadows like that well it leaves us a little bit stuck doesn't it frozen frozen in fear never able to learn and grow and move on and, and uh, challenge those things that we're struggling with. So finding communities that are willing to look at the difficult topics to talk about them, people who are willing to show up and really dig into them, no matter what feelings it might evoke, is a very special thing. So thank you so much for having me. The very first thing I'd like to do is acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm presenting tonight, which here would be the, Wur the Wurundjeri people. And I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. So, as Matt said, my name's Caroline. I'm a social worker. I have spent most of my career actually working in foster care and child protection. That led me on to teaching body safety to children because I realised that actually educating children about their bodies and their rights and what's okay and what's not okay could really empower them to protect them from abuse in the first place. That journey actually led me then to becoming a parenting educator. So educating parents on how they can have conversations with their kids that are really connecting and empowering, bring them together and help keep the kids safer and stronger. Hence the name of my business, which is Safer Stronger Kids. So this presentation that I'm going to deliver for you guys tonight is a brand new one, requested by you guys, for you guys. So it's particularly exciting and I'll be very keen to hear about how it feels for you, what you learn from it, what else you wish you'd heard about at the end. So please hold your questions in mind and we'll get to them at the end. And I'll make sure that when I run this presentation in the future that I work in those things so that everyone can get out of it what they really, really need. So big kids, small devices. I've got to remember to click both this screen and that one. Let's hope I can remember that all night. Might need a bit of help. All right, so we've talked about who I am. I will say quickly too, my main thing that I do is provide private parent education and parent coaching. So I meet with parents one-on-one -on -one to talk about what challenges they're facing, um, where they're needing advice in the home. And it's from those individual sessions, which I feel so privileged to sit in and to be on people's parenting journey with them. It's those private sessions that then inform a lot of what I talk about in my presentations because I see it firsthand. I hear the challenges and the stories and they stay with me. And then I think about what advice did that person need? What was elicited in that conversation? And that's what informs all of the presentations that I do, including this one tonight. So why are, oh, I've got to flick you guys along. There we go. So why are we here? Hands up if you think there might be an issue to do with both smartphones and iPads. <laughs> yeah. 
It's a bit of a rhetorical question, really, isn't it? We know very instinctively that something's not right. These devices that have been created supposedly for us, meant to make life better, certainly do in many ways. I don't know, quite literally speaking, where I would be without Google Maps a lot of the time. I'm very directionally challenged. Google Maps is very useful to me. So in some ways, they've made life better, haven't they? But for everything we've gained through smartphones and devices, iPads, we've also lost an awful lot. And I think on balance that our community tends to want to hang on to the belief that we have gained more than we've lost. That this is, well, you can't even criticise it a lot of the time, can you? Sometimes people will jump very quickly into defending it. Or they'll say all of the good things, especially about social media. They won't want to talk about what the negatives are. I wonder if that's actually because sometimes we don't want to think about those difficult things, and especially we don't want to ponder things where we might have to change our behaviour as a result. Changing our behaviour is hard, <laughs> and so we'll resist it. So we'll find ways to defend things that we're kind of stuck to, even when inside we know actually they may be creating a problem. So maybe you guys can tell me, what do you think the main issues with, particularly smartphones, what do you see in families what might be the main things that cause you concern, that you notice, that jump out at you? No communication? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So busy communicating on the device, very busy, never glancing up. Yeah, but not communicating with the people in the room. Absolutely. There's an irony there, isn't it? Busy connecting, supposedly, and you're not connecting to anybody at all. Absolutely. And as it says here, which hopefully, oh no, we've flicked off that. Our phones are leading us to live what you call parallel lives. Lives alongside each other, but not actually with each other. Yeah. You could also describe it in homes as pleasant, but not present. When everyone's on their device, there's no arguing, is there? <laughs> Maybe there's no tantrums. It's quiet. Until they have to get off. Until they have to get off, absolutely. It's quiet. Kids won't make a mess if they're on a screen. The house will stay tidier. Everyone retreats to their rooms doing their own things. So it's pleasant, but it's not present. We're not actually experiencing life together. Just before we were chatting about a bus stop. If you drive past a bus stop these days with teens waiting for the school bus at the end of the day, they'll all be on their device. Mm, yeah. No one will be having any incidental conversations. If you walk into a university lecture theatre, what would it have looked like 20 years ago? Chatting. You might never have met the person sitting next to, but You'd strike up a conversation. There's nothing else to do. You might as well talk to them. I wonder how many couples actually got together that way. Now you walk in and what are our uni students greeted with? Perhaps 300 people in a university lecture theatre. Everyone head downs looking at their phones. Is it any wonder then that we're lonelier than we've ever been before? We're more anxious 
than any previous generation. We're more depressed than any previous generation. Since, rec since recording began. So you think about some of those world events that have gone on <laughs> since the recording began, and yet it's now that people are struggling the most, comparing themselves online to other people. We know intellectually that what people post on social media is a highlights reel of their life. We know that they post the best things. We know it's probably been photoshopped. We know there's filters on it. We know, we know that's just a moment in time. All of these things we intellectually know. Yeah, that's not how we feel, is it? You're on social media, you look through Instagram. There's, it's in your nervous system, not just your brain, that you feel it. You feel yourself comparing yourself and your reality to this highlights reel that you're seeing over here. And your reality is probably messier than what you're seeing in that highlights reel. It's probably got more arguments. It's probably got more ins and outs, more nuances, more details. Well, that's because it's real. It doesn't mean it's less than the highlights reel happening over there. So we know that intellectually, but we feel something very different. The other significant problem is that when we connect with people online, the word connection is the one we always use, isn't it? And that's the biggest benefit of social media that we tend to cling to. It's how everyone connects. It's how you connect with people overseas. It's, it just brings the world together. But actually, when we connect with people online, through text messaging, through any form of just messaging, it's quite distinct from calling someone when you're text messaging or using social media, you don't experience what's called limbic resonance. Your brain and body don't light up in the same way as when you do when you're physically with someone. So when you walk out of, for instance, a presentation like this, or any instance where you're connecting with community, just with other people, your brain does something, doesn't it? You walk away from there with a certain feeling. Your body feels different like to invite you to think tonight when you leave here, even when we've talked about difficult things, pay attention to how your body feels. Then the next time you're on a Zoom and you get off, pay attention to how your body feels. It's a very different experience. And it's because connecting online is good when that's the only option, <laughs> perhaps during lockdowns, things like that but it doesn't replace the real thing, not in terms of our bodies and nervous systems. It doesn't replace the real things, the real thing. But we have allowed it to replace the real thing. So we know that our teenagers in particular are going out less than any previous generation. They go to fewer parties. They take less risks. That seems like a really good thing. They drink less alcohol. They have less sex. All these risky behaviours are all less. But how do you make memories if you don't go out with your friends? How do you build your identity if you don't go out with people and have experiences? How do you build memories, especially if you don't take risks? How do you learn what you're capable of or what you're not? How do you learn when you've pushed it too far if you've never taken the risk because all you've done actually is stay at home texting? So our kids being home in their rooms, texting, being on social media, might in some ways seem really positive. They're home, and so they're safe. They're here, they're not going out crazily partying. But there's a flip side. And the flip side is like I touched on before. 
They're lonelier, more anxious, more depressed than previous generations. Now, some people might argue that there's, surely there's other reasons for that. Perhaps that's lockdown. Maybe it's COVID. Maybe it's all the world events going on. There are so many reasons why our teens might be struggling so much, except that it's not those things, because we know that their mental health started declining the year that smartphones became widely popular. And especially, well, we had Facebook released first and smartphones later. So Facebook released on a computer was one thing. It's when we put it in everybody's pocket. And then we developed Instagram and then TikTok. It's then that we saw their mental health really enter a crisis stage. So we can't keep just pretending. <laughs> pretending like, oh, it can't be that bad. Or perhaps we, well, it's all here to stay. It's here to stay, so we just have to learn to manage it. We have to teach them how to manage it. <sighs> that might be true. Perhaps there's no other option. But perhaps also we need to take some responsibility for what we've actually unleashed with very little regulation, with very little foresight. The technology moved so much faster than any of the actual legislation. So we've put something in the pockets of our teens and our tweens. So we know that kids now, even in the senior years of high school, and from the ages of nine and up, will be hearing, everyone else in my class has got a phone, why haven't I? We spend all day at school together and then they're at home and then they're on Messenger Kids already. So social media, phones, they're sitting in, setting in very, very early. And they're a challenge to our mental health, that we've, to our kids' mental health, and also to ours. So we've got to remember, as I'm talking tonight, I will be talking primarily about teens. But I am sure that you'll find it also resonating for yourself. Perhaps your own relationship with social media and your phone. Now, oh, you've got it up there, perfect. Okay, so we know that there's an issue. Some of these things that we're going to talk about here I've already covered. All right. One thing I have found, particularly in my private coaching sessions, is that when parents know that there's a problem, when they've realised they cannot get their child or their tween or their teen off their phone without major tantrums, without major aggression, perhaps without furniture getting broken. When they simply, when they discover that their child has been waking up in the middle of the night and gaming. I've had um, families whose children have been on the verge of um, having to go in for sleep studies to work out, well, why are they struggling to sleep before the child fessed up? That actually what was happening is they're waking up to game and gaming all night long. And this is not uncommon. So if I have hear from a teacher who's saying they've got very sleepy children in their class, no matter, what, no matter what age group, I'd be asking, do they have a device in their room? Or are they going to get it and bring it back into their room in the middle of the night? The problem is so ingrained, so common. It's also so obvious that it seems to be something no one actually thinks about. What I've discovered when I talk to families about this, when they realise there's a problem, is that there is a deep sense of shame. There is a deep sense of them going, I am so embarrassed that it's gotten to this. They blame themselves. They blame lack of boundaries. They blame, they'll blame just about anything, <laughs> but it will be on themselves. 
on their partner, on their situation. It is absorbed into being this sense of personal responsibility. And yes, there are things that we can personally do to be proactive and prevent these things from happening. But also, everybody needs to know that we're kind of being set up, well not kind of, we are being set up to fail. These technologies are designed to be persuasive. They're called persuasive technology. They're designed to keep us hooked. The businesses behind every app on your phone, well, they make a lot of money, don't they? We know that for sure. But how do they make money? It's not from us. We don't pay anything to use those apps. So actually, anything that's given to us for free means that we are the product. We are the thing that's being sold. That is how they make money. It's our attention and our time, but also changing our behaviour. Changing our behaviour to elicit us to spend more time on the app, but also changing our behaviour primarily to get us to buy things. So we are the product. Our kids are the product. These businesses are incredibly fine-tuned. They know what they are doing to keep us on there as much as possible. All of their engineering goes into that. All of their design goes into that. Because they know the more time you spend on there, the more money they will make. So our time, our attention, our energy, our behaviour, our kids' behaviour is the product. That means it's, it's not just us, is it? We are the ones feeling guilt and shame and remorse and all of these feelings for not having managed differently, for not having done a better job, for not having given our kids more boundaries, kept them off it, taught them more, had more conversations, all of those things. But actually, the system was designed to do this to them. It's working, the system is not broken, the system is working exactly as it was, as it was designed to. The system is working exactly as it was intended to. And people being on their phones too much is exactly what these companies want. And we've all fallen prey to it. We'll all have had times where we think, how much time was I scrolling today? Yeah. It just creeps up on you. And it does for our kids as well. So yes, we can do things personally to make a difference. There's no doubt about that. But we need to know that we're set up against it. And the laws and legislations around social media all of these technologies are so behind as to be, I've really called it Old West, the online. The online world is just the Wild West. It's just everyone doing what they want, everyone trying to make money. Safety is not really anybody's concern. And the people within there are just trying to stay alive. And unfortunately for our teens, that really is what it's come to. So this is not a private failing. What this is is a public health issue. It's a public health issue in the same way that teaching people to wear seatbelts was a public health issue. The same way that people cleaning, getting people to clean their teeth with fluoride toothpaste was a public health issue. In the same way, smoking is a public health issue. So we've made change in those areas, which once upon a time would have been really difficult, wouldn't it? But we realised it was important for people's health and safety. People came together and change was made. And so there's hope. We can make a lot of change in these areas, but we have to get everybody on board, willing to actually look at it. 
people don't really want to. <laughs> it's a very uncomfortable thing. All right. So it's really important within that to know it's not your fault. If your child is on their phone too much, if they spend too much time on their iPad, yes, there's so much you can do, but also it was never your fault in the first place. And especially, oh, I've got to click the button, don't I? Uh-oh. Are we doing anything? The suspense yes. is killing us. Oh, now I bet we'll jump ahead about three, because I pressed it about three times. There we go. This is a very important point. It's not your fault. It's not your child's fault either. Because that's our next step, isn't it? Yeah. When we feel uncomfortable because, ooh, maybe this is on me. Maybe I should have done something here. Our next convenient step is to go, it's on my child. We signed that online safety contract about how long you'd use your phone for and when you'd put it away and what time you'd put it away and the fact that you wouldn't go get it out from where it's locked away. We, we had all of these conversations. You did cyber safety education at school. You know these things. You know better than that. Well, we all know better than that too, don't we? Yet we still find ourselves scrolling Facebook when we should be going to sleep. So it's not our kids' fault either. They get stuck in these compulsion loops, which really are the same as being at the pokies. That feeling of scrolling right. and you don't know what you're going to get. Is it going to be something boring? Is it going to be something exciting? Is it going to be something from a friend? It doesn't matter whether you're on Facebook, Instagram, whatever you're on, video gaming, they're all the same. What they're all banking, what, what they all rely on, which is ext an extremely consistent response, is the release of dopamine in our brains, which is what's also released when you play the pokies. That's what makes the pokies addictive. So we need to be very clear in understanding that these apps are designed to be addictive. You didn't become addicted because of some personal failing. Yes, some people will be more at risk than others. That's just a truth. But they were designed to be that way. They were engineered to be that way, to grab your attention, to hold it, to reward you for coming back over and over and over again. Designed to draw you down rabbit holes that keep you watching just simply to keep it in your hand, because the more you have it in your hand, the more money they make. For our kids, it's not just that, though, too. Because of their age and stage of development, there's other reasons on top of that that are why they can't put it away. So it's that release of dopamine, which if you think about how much dopamine you get scrolling on your phone, and then you think about putting that down and turning around and going to dinner. The dopamine just drops, doesn't it? Suddenly there's no dopamine there. You go from feeling, oh, yeah, kind of adjust to that release of dopamine. And you turn around to go for dinner, it just all fades away. You're going to push against that feeling. You, go, you want to go back to your phone because it feels better in your body. You especially are not going to want to put your phone down so you can work on your homework that's feeling really hard and you're really sick of doing it. Things that don't release dopamine will get harder and harder and harder because you're becoming more acclimatised in your body to having that dopamine released regularly. But especially, and this is an important one, which I should put on the slide, is that when you're on your phone, it's low effort for high reward, which means you don't have to do a thing except scroll and your body gets all of these good feelings. You intellectually know that this kind of doesn't feel good because you've been sitting on the couch all day, and yet it still feels good. 
and that's the dopamine. You didn't have to do anything for it. You can also release dopamine riding your bike. You can release dopamine. You can release dopamine all sorts of ways, but they're all higher effort. They're all high effort for high reward, whereas the screen is for high reward. So that's another way our kids get trapped. They're so used to this feeling of this is just easier. Going out, making plans with friends, having to get dressed up, it's hard. I'll just stay in my room and text them. So much easier, I don't have to get out of my trackies. FOMO. Oh, no, the next one along there, anxiety about what's being said about us online. So for kids, this is very real. If they're not on their screen, if they're not monitoring Snapchat, how do they know what other people are saying about them on Snapchat? For teenagers, their sense of belonging, or their need to belong, I should say, is all-powerful. It's everything. To not belong feels like an existential crisis. It feels deeply unsafe to not belong. So at all times, they're scanning for threat, like signs that they don't fit in or they don't belong. So you're going to be checking social media relentlessly, making sure no one's saying anything bad about you, making sure you're on the front foot, kind of holding down the fort of your own existence in a way. FOMO, fear of missing out. If you put down your phone, you might miss the latest thing. You might not know what everyone's going to be talking about the next day. If your parent does what they need to be doing, which is getting you to lock up your phone at night, because the phone should never be allowed in bedrooms and bathrooms. Well, if you don't have your phone all night, and all of your friends do, they're all texting all through the night, and you're not, what have you just missed out on? So kids will push back on that, and they will push back on that in a very big way. Again, like it's some sort of existential crisis. Snap streaks, so the need to update Constantly send them, respond to everybody, maintain it. It's a reason Snapchat designed them. It keeps them hooked in. They cannot let go. And that's just one example. Every app has something like that. Drama cyclones from leaving someone on red or not responding fast enough. The worst crime you can commit as a, teen, a tween or a teen is if you've read someone's message and they can see that you've read it and you didn't respond. And what ensues can only be described as a drama cyclone, <laughs> where parents are left wondering, what the? It's very hard to empathise with, isn't it? It just seems ridiculous. And yet, for our kids, it's not ridiculous at all. It feels very important. Or if you didn't respond to someone fast enough, oh, yeah, it's just a big deal. Predatory behaviours and sexploitation. We read that dot point and we want to believe that that wouldn't be that common. We think you know, that's, that's at the bottom because it seems quite unlikely. You know, that wouldn't be the reason why a kid can't put away their phone. Actually, no. It's far more common than what we want to imagine. And if you have a child who has been tricked into sending a picture of their body, maybe someone on the other side of the world pretended to be a teenage girl who, yeah, I know that person that you know, yeah, but friend me, of course. And then we're chatting and then they elicit an image and now they've got that image. And then the truth comes out 
and then that person starts demanding more images. Or else, I'll send that first image to everybody you know. Or they start demanding other things, like money. We've had far too many teens in the last few years commit suicide due to sexploitation. The shame of having been tricked, the shame of and the fear of those images being sent out, feels like something that would not be common. And yet, if you talk to teenagers, you'll find it happens all the time. It's a daily, maybe not daily, but a very regular part of their existence, something that they just have to be on guard for. The amount of predators online demanding things from them. If you have a child who is within that situation, you're going to see them, you're going to see their behaviour probably change quite rapidly. You're going to see them very withdrawn. You're going to see them hanging on to their phone out of fear. What's going to be demanded next? How are they going to comply? You might decide then that you've really got to do something about it because I can't stay this addicted to their phone. So you try to take the phone away and there's a big blow up because the child hasn't told you anything yet about what's really going on. All of this is really important because if we're talking about reducing our children's screen time, we have got to understand the reasons behind why it might be so hard for them to put that phone away. And we've got to really breathe into the fact that they're not just trying to be difficult, they're not just being teenagers, they're not just hormonal, they're not, they're not just causing trouble because that's what kids do. There might be some very, very good reasons why they can't put it away, why they're spending too much time on it. So is it really surprising when they can't just put their phone on the kitchen bench at night and leave it till there till the next morning? How many people here sleep with their phone next to their bed? Be honest. Yeah. Buy a lot. <laughs> I know. That's what but you could buy an alarm. And do you wind up, <laughs> do you wind up those scrolling last thing and then scrolling right when you've woken up? See, a lot of people do. Very first thing they do in the morning is check their phone. Very first thing, last thing you do at night is check your phone. For our teenagers, they're probably sleeping with it under their pillow. If they're asleep at all, more, more than likely they're just awake all night long watching it the whole time. Okay. So, as I said, what we've got here is a public health crisis occurring very, very privately. And it stays private because it causes so much shame. No one wants to talk about it. If you have a child that you discover has been approached by a predator who has been sexploited, who is um, perhaps addicted to their video gaming, you don't want to tell other parents that that's what's going on because you feel shame about the fact that it happened in the first place. So that means, because no one's talking about it, everyone thinks that they're the only person it's happened to and no one is communicating about any of it. And we have no real idea how widespread these issues are until we look at the research. But if everyone actually breathed into the fact that this is a public health issue instead of a private one, yeah. oh, suddenly it's easier to talk about, isn't it? Okay. So when we think about all of that, the results could not be clearer. Screen activities are more likely to be unhappy. Those who spend more time on non-screen activities are more likely to be happy. There's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness and all non-screen activities are linked, or that should say, more happiness. 
That's a really critical, critical thing. The all non-screen activities are linked to more happiness. The more time you spend off your phone, the better you feel. The more time you spend on it, the worse you feel. It's true for us. It's even more true for our kids. Screen activities are linked to more loneliness, and non-screen activities are linked to less loneliness. Teens who spend a lot of time with their friends in person are much less likely to be lonely. Social media use caused loneliness to increase. A lot of people will question, is it causation or is it correlation? Maybe lonely teens just spend more time on their phone because they've got nothing else to do. No, that's already been studied. We've already ticked that off. We know that using social media will make you feel more lonely. Why? It's not real. It's not real. But also, you see all the things other people are doing. It's yeah. yeah. You feel like you weren't included. You feel like their life is better than yours. But also, that's that low effort, high reward thing. The more you use your phone, the more you find it really easy, the more you don't go out and do anything because it's too much effort. So it's very, very quick, to, very speedy downward spiral. So now that we've scared ourselves talking about <laughs> all of the problems, now that I've thoroughly freaked everybody out, what are we actually going to do about it? Because it feels kind of overwhelming at this point, doesn't it? Like, whew, it's kind of inescapable. We can't just not have phones. Though I did find myself Googling today dumb phones, <laughs> ones that aren't connected to the internet. Feels like a great time-saving device. Well. Deciding what we're going to do about it means we actually have to take a step back and we have to assess for each individual family how extreme the problem is. Because the truth is that this looks different. It looks very similar across every family, but in really important ways, it's also different. People's brains are different from each other. Teen, tweens and teenagers, their brains are all different from each other. Their nervous systems are different from each other. Some have higher resilience to these things. Some have lower resilience, not through some sort of personality flaw, but just because that's how it is. So we have to really take a breath into how bad is it? How extreme is the problem in your home? that assessment will guide what you do next. When you really think, it, think of it as something of, this is a problem, but it's a problem I can do something about, as opposed to, this is a problem, there's nothing I can do. It's just how it is these days. Well, it doesn't have to be, does it? We're the grown-ups. <laughs> we get to make choices. We decide what comes into our home and what stays out of it. And that applies all of the time, even when it's hard. We all have to tread our own path, but at the same time, communicating with those around us is really important. So being honest with people around us about what's actually going on in our family and our home, being honest and actually willing to be vulnerable and talk about it, instead of just feeling an inside, inside as something taboo and too hard to speak about. We really won't get very far until we're willing to actually speak it. And also, part of that is communicating with the people around us so that we can build communities that are all doing the same thing. 
it is much easier to change how this goes for our children and our teens if all of the grown-ups work together. Today I reinstalled a landline, which it makes everybody laugh. I plugged it in, I rang it, it was so exciting. I, rang my, I used it to ring my husband and he rang it. I was like, oh, it's ringing, it was very exciting. Why would I reinstall a landline after all this time? It's, it's classic 90s cordless too, like amazing. Because my kids want to be able to contact their friends after school. They don't have devices <laughs> that don't come into our house. So, but what am I going to do with the landline if nobody else has one? So I took a picture of it. I sent it to loads of people and said, can you put in one too? <laughs> because if all of the kids at their primary school have a home phone, they can all learn how to call each other. They don't have to connect. I can't tell you how common it is for parents to say, well, they have to have their iPad and Messenger kids because how else would they contact their friends? The same way we all did. <laughs> well, the girls definitely did. And the, the line of, you know, hello, Mrs. Smith, may I please speak to Sarah? It's actually a really important skill. Learning to in interact with people. Yes. And you knew if a boy had called for your sister. Like, you know. Everyone laughs at me when I say about the landline, like it's so outdated. But yeah, it's useless if I do it all by myself. But what if I can get lots of people to do the same thing? I'm pretty convinced that my kids are safer with a landline than they are with something that is connected to the internet, which means the whole world is connected to them. It's much easier to, connect, to protect them from sexploitation, predators, the ability to view porn accidentally, all of those things, if all they've got is a landline with old school 90s buttons. So if we, <laughs> my kids have got a long road ahead of them. I do feel sad for them every now and then. Um, if we all do it together, if we all talk, it becomes much easier. So what do we do? If you know in your gut that the issue is in the severe category in your home, if you know that you have a child who's addicted to video games, maybe it's at the point where they just can't get off to go to school, they're still gaming. I've worked with families whose children are defecating in their gaming seats because they won't get up to go to the toilet. They won't, they're certainly not going to school. If you know that it's that extreme, if no one is coming out of their rooms, if they never communicate or do anything outside of their device, it's in the extreme. So what are you going to do about it? A lot of professionals will say that there is never a reason to take away the device. But to take away the device is, it's called digital amputation. You cut them off from their friends, all of those things. I'm inclined to disagree because you can't quit smoking while carrying around a packet of cigarettes in your pocket. You can't do it. The temptation is too strong. We can't expect our teenagers to do something that we couldn't do. So we have to take the harder road. But what I would say is to do it with supports. So you're going to seek the support of a psychologist. 
But before you contact that psychologist, well, when you contact them, before you take your child there, you do need to make sure that psychologist is on board. Because whatever mental health professional you work with, and you're going to need one, but they need to be willing to back you up and not say, no, no, don't take the device away from them. They should have it in their bedroom. It's alleviating their anxiety. It's actually equally likely to be creating it. And so there is a time and a place, in my opinion, for taking the devices and making radical change. And I didn't say it was going to be easy. <laughs> That's why I said seek the supports. There are groups now that specialise in supporting families through this. One of them is called Screen Strong Families. Their particular focus is usually on video games, but the process is the same for social media. It's about going, you can backtrack. If as a, as a parent you made the mistake of giving a child a phone too early, you gave them those apps, you can do something about it. You can take it back and you can change. You will, at the same time, need to change so much about how your life runs. You're going to have to put your own phone away. You're going to have to do a whole lot of family activities. You're going to need to support them as they go cold turkey. You're going to need to work with your community around you to support them. You're going to need to find other ways for them to contact their friends. But you can do it. You don't have to be trapped in this cycle. Okay, so to do that, you do need to be motivated, confident and consistent with your boundaries. And you need to be ready to hold them with love and compassion. You don't get to yell at your kids <laughs> and scream at them, unleash it all on them for being their fault, for them not doing a better job of it. We gave them the phones, we've got to take ownership and say, I did this too, but we've got to do, we've got to do better, we've got to do things differently. In addition to that, all of, the strategy, all of the strategies we're going to talk about next are equally important. So all of these strategies that we're going to talk about, we're going to go through 10 different ideas. These are all effective for every level of change, whether it's changing a really extreme situation or where things just need to improve a little bit. Okay, the very first thing to know is about parenting styles. A laissez-faire parent. This is a parent who just kind of struggles with boundaries. The parent who doesn't really want to have them. The parent who will probably identify as being their child's best friend, perhaps. They'll often find themselves saying, oh, just don't worry about it, forget I said anything. Laissez-faire parents often have had the experience of an authoritarian parent growing up. They were afraid of their parent. There were too many rules, it was too strict. And so they swing the other way as parents. They go, I'm not going to be like that. But they're not confident with their boundaries. They're afraid of them, because when they were growing up, boundaries were scary. So now they're afraid of boundaries. They don't want to have them. For a laissez-faire parent, then, it will feel very difficult to implement boundaries. They won't want to. They'll be very afraid that implementing a boundary is going to damage the relationship. As a result, what they will often do is be very, 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 very calm patient, supportive, friendly, and then they'll blow up and explode out of anger and frustration because they don't know what else to do. We don't want to be that parent. Being the laissez-faire parent with a screen-addicted child is very difficult. We've got to be able to move beyond being the laissez-faire parent. So we don't want to... The reason that this is pictured next to a river is I'd like to, you to think about laissez-faire being one bank of that river. On the other bank is the authoritarian parent. This is the parent who is 
It's all about compliance, obedience. My child will respect me, but actually respect can be a little bit of a uh, nicer word for fear. I want them to fear me. I, I believe children need to fear their parents a little bit, they might say. They'll say, because I said so. It's my rules, it's my house, it's how it is around here. The parent really centres their own beliefs, their values. That's the primary thing. There's no negotiating it. It is, is how it is. So trust, talking things through, emotional safety, collaboration. They might be there sometimes, but they're not consistently present. So that's the authoritarian bank. Where we want to be, as much as we can, is actually straight down the middle of that river. The authoritative parent. This is the parent who can say confidently, let's talk it over. I'd like to hear what you have to say. But then, when there's a boundary needed, they can also say, I've heard what you've said and I get it. I can see how you're feeling and I get it. But I need to make some rules here. And I know this might be upsetting for you. I know it might be difficult. It's okay for you to be mad with me. It's okay for you to be upset with me that I've taken away your phone. It's okay to be frustrated with me that I won't let you have Snapchat when all of your friends do. I get that you're mad, I know that it's hard. So there's a confidence in the boundaries, but the boundaries are also done with communication, with empathy, and allowing the child to have their feelings. You don't take those feelings personally. We don't take their anger in response to the boundary as a sign of disrespect. We just go, that's okay. You're allowed to be mad with me. I can totally ride that out. It's just how it needs to be. Because my job as a parent is to keep you safe. So sometimes I have to make really hard decisions. When you're able to be empowered like that and confidently set the boundary and then just take whatever feelings come, stick with it, it's okay. And you've done all the talking, done the empathising. Just makes it a lot easier, doesn't it, to hold the limit and to move forward staying as captain of the ship going, eh, it's difficult, stormy seas, but we'll be okay. The reason this is a river is because no one ever manages to stay in the middle of the river all the time. I'm a parenting coach. My whole career has been educating people about parenting. <laughs> I don't manage it. Sometimes I find myself in the bumping into the laissez-faire bit. Other times I'm tired, I get a bit snappy, and I get all authoritarian, and my, parent, my kids look at me like... Where did that come from? But you want to keep steering back to the middle of the river, steering back to that authoritative parent. You'll never get it 100% right all of the time, and that's okay. I hear so much about consistency being really important in parenting. I think it can be, but we're also all human, and we won't be 100% consistent all of the time. So that's the very first thing to hold in mind, and it defines how we manage the boundaries. The next really important thing to hold in mind, we kind of already touched on this, it's about looking behind the behaviour. Your child won't put away their phone. If they keep gaming through the middle of the night, if they're looking at it to distract themselves from all sorts of things, what's behind it? Get curious, not furious. Instead of focusing on the behaviour and just addressing the thing that's in front of you, go one step further. Think more deeply about what feeling is driving the behaviour. This is a tip that's in relation to screens. This is a tip that's about everything. Every time your child chucks a tantrum, every time we chuck a tantrum, 
What's behind the behaviour? It's probably the most liberating parenting tip because it will benefit all of your relationships with everybody that you talk to. It suddenly makes people much easier to understand. When you stop focusing on the behaviour, you start looking behind it, the path forward suddenly becomes a lot clearer because what you need to solve is what's going on behind the screen use and go through that instead of just seeing the behaviour right in front of you. Okay, tip number three. With our kids, you can also, I'd invite you to do this with everybody you meet, actually. It's amazing how much time I spend talking about online. So I don't know how that is for other people at weddings and things. I'm always <laughs> talking about it, but I'll keep going. Share what you've learnt and are learning. It's actually really connection building and empowering for our kids when we go, I don't know everything. I didn't know this before. I've just found out. And can you believe? We talk about it. We share that journey with them. That sounds so obvious as to be a patronising tip. But it's not. Because a lot of the times as parents, we feel like we should know everything. But if we're going to be a competent leader, we should have all the answers. We should never backtrack, because that would mean admitting we made a mistake in the first place. Then we'll lose our kids' respect, like it's all downhill from there. The opposite is true. It's absolutely okay. In fact, it's important to show our kids that we're still learning. Showing them that will gain respect, not erode it. They will not respect you less because you learnt stuff. What you will role model instead is vulnerability, lifelong learning, change, adjusting our own behaviours, flexibility, many, many good things. I can't think of many of the good things that come from staying stuck in convincing everybody that you're always right in the first place. Okay, next one. This is a really important one. Also a parenting tip that's not just in relation to screens. It's useful all the time. When you don't know what to say, ask a question. That feeling of when you don't know how to respond to your child or your teen, you're like you're just stuck for words. What advice should you give them? How do you respond to this? Like, what do you do now? What do you say? That feeling is your clue that what you're meant to do is ask a question. We don't, though, do we? What we do instead is launch in with our answers. We launch in with what they, we think they want, or to kind of prove ourselves, like prove that we, we just know everything. But if you can stop and ask a question, what you will do is hear more about their perspective. You're showing an interest. You're slowing down the conversation, so instead of racing through it, to what should have been the conclusion, i.e. giving your advice often, you're staying in it, you're diving further. This is also really useful if you've got younger kids who are perhaps asking questions about sex. Maybe they ask what porn means. Maybe well, just about any question they ask. And you get a bit stumped and you think, how am I meant to answer that? What you do is ask a question. Can you tell me more about why you're asking that? Oh, what brought that question to mind? What do you think it is? What have you heard? Oh, 
that's when you find out some really interesting things that you actually really needed to know. If you just answer, you won't find them. What we do instead, though, instead of expanding the conversation by asking questions, we will jump in, we'll fix, we'll offer our opinions, we'll say things like, when I was a kid, and then our kids immediately stop listening. Um, but particularly, we might talk over them, we might judge them, shame them, all of that. Um, we're just not very good at staying in the moment. I would like to challenge you to go away and pay attention to this in your conversations moving forward. When you have a moment when you tell someone something, like you say, oh, it was just a rough day. Notice the people who go, tell me more about why it was rough or what happened. And notice the people who go, oh, I had a rough day as well. My day was rougher than yours. Wait till you hear my story. Then pay attention to how it makes you feel. You're guaranteed you, pay more, you feel more connected to the person who asked you more questions. That also means with your kids that when you do that, when you go on to set a boundary, when you go on to give them your advice, they'll be more likely to listen to you. If you showed them that you paid attention in the first place, you stayed in the moment, you expanded the conversation, when you get to a point where you do set a boundary, they're way more likely to actually hear you because you heard them first. If you jump straight in with that boundary, poof, you're not going to get anywhere. Okay. It's a little bit of overlap in some of these, but I wanted to give you the terms. The reason I want to give you the terms is because they create a rabbit hole that you can go down, hopefully not on YouTube, but <laughs> perhaps with your reading, Google it. One of those rabbit holes is emotion coaching and learning, really breathing into how we set limits with love using emotion coaching. So emotion coaching is really, in a way, it's a framework for a conversation, and there are five steps to it. First step is about finding the feeling that the person is experiencing. The second step is about managing the moment, going, yeah, is this a moment where I can emotion coach or is this something different? The reason being, the reason that's a separate step is because if you try to talk with a teenager about their feelings, when all of their friends are around them, it's not going to go well. So <laughs> there is a point where you have to, you think about finding the feeling, you think what's going on for them behind this behaviour, and then you have to pause and go, is this something I'm going to verbalise right now, or does this wait until a later moment? Step three in emotion coaching is about learning to listen. This is really reflective listening, repeating back what the person has just said to you. So they say, I had a rough day. You say, you had a rough day? They say, yeah, you can't believe what just happened to me in, at lunchtime. And you say, tell, tell me more about what happened at lunchtime. You're literally repeating some of the words in a way that shows empathy, immediately shows them empathy, but also shows them you're really listening. Reflective listening is a skill that I was taught when I was studying social work. And we had to sit um, and be recorded staging a, a counselling session with someone, and it was the most awkward thing I've ever done. <laughs> Reflective listening when you first do it, when you first follow these steps, sounds really awkward, really laboured. But actually, you'll find the course of your conversations goes so differently when you do it. You open up 
conversations with people that you just think, that would never have gone that way if I hadn't just done that reflective listening. The next step in emotion coaching, I call it name it to tame it. This is where you actually verbalise the feelings that are going on. It sounds like you're feeling really lonely. I wonder if that made you feel really mad. So you verbalise the feelings that they might be experiencing. It is helpful to remember those words, I wonder. I wonder if you're really frustrated. I wonder if you got really mad about that. I wonder if that was kind of humiliating. I wonder what you felt. The reason I wonder is so powerful is because you're offering without telling. You tell a teenager how they're feeling. <laughs> Again, risky. Just they're going to tell you. No matter how much you nailed it, they're probably going to tell you you were wrong. You offer gently with I wonder, they're much more likely to take you up on it. That is how I felt. Yes, and they keep talking. The step five is problem solving and setting limits. So this is where we come into the, let's talk about what we can do with your phone that might make things easier. Do you think we need to actually put it in the kitchen every night? Perhaps we need to buy that thing called an in-charge box that I've seen on Facebook and you can lock the phones in it and they charge in there and it stays there overnight until it gets unlocked in the morning. Should we get one of those? You might. It might be collaborative like that. There might also be times where you say, that is going to be what we do. But because you did all the other steps first, again, your boundaries, problem solving, working together is going to be more successful. If you jump straight to step five with a teenager, actually with anyone, doesn't matter how old they are, if you jump, if they tell you I had a rough day and you go, well, you should have quit that job ages ago. I told you it wasn't the right career for you. It doesn't feel good, does it? <laughs> it's really frustrating. But yet we do this to people all the time. Once you start hearing it, you won't stop hearing it now. You'll hear it all the time. This works in relation to setting to screen time because this is about our confidence in setting boundaries and actually having collaborative conversations with our kids that are open where everyone's allowed to talk and express their feelings and we can move through those feelings and wind up actually working together. Without these skills, we'll find ourselves going to that bank of authoritarian. It's just, this is what we're doing, it's because I said so, and you will listen to me. Or we'll wind up on the other side, that laissez-faire, we'll just forget I said anything. So establishing our ability to set boundaries with love, with confidence, hold them, it's really important. Okay, step number six. We want to establish some baseline rules. We're taking a little bit of a step into something slightly different now. Some really important basic rules that should exist in every house that are actually just non-negotiables. I'm going to start with that second one. Phones don't go into private spaces ever. Phones, including our own, have no place in bedrooms and bathrooms. Why do you think that might be? Anyone tell me? Do you know why? Why is it important that our teenagers and our kids are not allowed to use their phones as their alarm? Yeah. Yep. Why else? What else might be going on? It's just a way to supervise 
Mm-hmm. That's right. There's no way to supervise. That means you don't know if they're using it all night long. Also means you have no idea who they're talking to. Also, our kids are much less likely to be sexploited and to send pictures of themselves if that phone is never allowed in a private space. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So when we listen to our police officers who specialise in this, who do this all day, every day, having to watch the images that kids have created of themselves in their own homes, who've then sent those images, they've self-created those images, and they've sent them to predators. They say that all of those images are created in bedrooms and bathrooms. They're of all ages, from four all the way through. It doesn't matter how old a child is. Now, when our kids, then when they're teenagers, you might say, well, they have their phone on them all the time. They take it to school, they're home when we're not home. How can I enforce them never having it in their bedroom and bathroom? You can't, maybe, when you're not home. But the reason you still do it when you are home is because it's a value statement. And you're communicating, this is still the rule, and we're going to talk about why it's the rule. And we're talking about, it's the fact that I'm, it's my job to keep you safe, and at 16, you can hear about what the term sexploitation means. And you, we can have conversations about the fact that we never send pictures of private parts. In fact, we can have that conversation with a four-year-old. So it's when we keep that rule no matter what, it means we have the conversation, we're educating them, and we're making a value statement that helps keep them safe. Really uncomfortable, really important. My five-year-old knows, she has no device anyway, but... No one is allowed, she knows, no one's ever allowed to take pictures of your private parts. They've been in the bath sometimes, and I have said on purpose, I'd love to take a photo, but no one should ever take pictures of your private parts. Why? Why would I say that? Because obviously I'm not going to take the picture, but I say it because it's a teachable moment for them to learn that that's never something that should happen. Okay, in addition to that, Privacy doesn't override the need to keep them safe. Check through their phone with them. This is a non-negotiable. So many parents will say, I'm not going to check through their phone because it's invading their privacy. Social media isn't private. Everything they're doing on social media is public. Their phone isn't a private space. It's your job to keep them safe. You get to go through it, but you go through it with them. I would never recommend doing it behind their back. I think that's a very quick way to eroding trust. And it's when you do it with them that you're going to have those collaborative conversations. You're not saying you're going to get in a whole lot of trouble if you've done something wrong. What we're saying is we're going to talk about it. Might they lose their phone if you discover something's going on that's really unsafe? Yeah, they might. But it's how we do that that's important. It's a big difference between taking a phone away with compassion, love, respect and conversation versus taking it away with berating, anger, calling them names and shaming them. It's two very different experiences. Another baseline, rude, and baseline rule is about delaying social media, then limiting it, then supervising it. Just keep them off it as long as you can. <laughs> I know that kids nagging for social media is painful. It's not as painful as supervising kids on social media. So whatever decision you make, whether it's delaying, putting them on it and supervising, you will expend energy and time. That's not a choice we get to make. We will have to do that. 
It's how you spend that time is up to you. You spend it talking through why they're not allowed to have it or you spend it supervising. And always, always, always the phones go into, it doesn't have to be an in-charge box. That's one useful tool. But there is no overnight phone use. Another reason that there is no overnight phone use is because our prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of our brain, the part of our brain that does the make, helping us make good decisions, <laughs> usually goes to bed before we do. And that's especially that's true for us. That's why we then, once we start scrolling and we're tired, we won't stop. That's why we might binge watch ridiculous shows far too late. It's because our prefrontal cortex went to bed before we did. So our, for our teenagers, it's even more true. That's why the majority of cyberbullying, of just about everything bad, happens late at night. Because in the day, we're more likely, and our teens are more likely to make a better choice. In the middle of the night, we just make bad choices. You'll spend money you didn't need to spend. You just, all sorts of dumb things happen. If they don't have their phone on them, it can't happen. Okay, number seven. I'm looking at the time and I've got to speed up. It's okay to make a mistake, change your mind or backtrack. I already covered this, so I'm going to gloss over it a little bit. It is okay to say, I gave you TikTok and now I realise it was a mistake. It's okay, uh, it's okay to say Snapchat, I didn't realise it was so problematic. Snapchat's actually one of the most dangerous apps out there. It's also the most common. It causes so many problems. There's also so many. There's predators on every app. It's really important to know that if an app is advertised for children and children are on it, then so are predators. The reason is because predators spend all of their time looking for easy, unsupervised access to children. So online spaces make that very easy for them. We're literally going silver platter. The more it's advertised towards children, the more predators will be on there because they know parents aren't watching. So it's okay to change your mind. Just be ready to weather the storm that happens afterwards and seek extra mental health support if it's needed. And know that you are not alone. You are not the first family that this has happened to and you won't be the last, sadly. As I said before, work together with the families around you. Actually talk to people. What we need to start doing here is seeing this as a public health issue, talking about it and making changes as a collective, as a collective will. But until that happens, all we've got is our personal responsibility. So we do our very best with that. It is shame that keeps us silent. This is across all topics. Shame prevents us from speaking the challenges. But if we keep the issues in the shadows, we just get absolutely nowhere. And the people that suffer as a result of that is our kids. We're too full of shame to talk about what's going on. So we don't seek help or we don't try to make change. Who suffers? We feel bad but it's our kids that are at risk. It's their mental health that suffers. It's also their future that suffers. They're not studying. They're not making memories. They're not developing connections. They're more anxious. The whole future's affected by that, especially when we know that teenagers who experience depression and anxiety, it changes their brain. They'll be more likely, more vulnerable to depression and anxiety across their lifespan. So it's not just right now that we've got to protect them. We're actually protecting them from that for their whole future. It's really important. Okay, next one. Number nine. 
Replace dopamine-releasing scrolling with dopamine-releasing activities that prioritise family connection. I mentioned before it's very hard to stop scrolling and write an essay because of dopamine plummet. It's very hard to go from video games to dinner. Dopamine plummet. It's that dopamine plummet that we have a lot of resistance to and it's what creates a, what we call a techno-tantrum. If instead you can transition them from dopamine on their screen to something else that's dopamine, like riding their bike, going swimming, playing a board game together, all of those things that actually engage them and are an experience, prioritises family connection, what you're going to do is make the transition easier because you're matching the brain chemicals, but you're also then you're offering something else, aren't you? Offering something else that builds, it builds the life together, builds connection. So the transition, I'm not saying it will be a walk in the park to go from the screen to the other things. You might still have the techno tantrum in the middle, but you'll be more likely to be successful. That's what we did with the kids who were defecating in their seats. First thing we did was move their video games to the kitchen instead of the bedrooms because the kitchen is a really uncomfortable place to be gaming, actually. It's not nearly as nice being wrapped up in your bedroom. And the second thing we did was making sure that we're always, when we're getting off it, instead of just getting off it to nothing, we're getting off it to do something. And where I didn't expect any change, we actually started to see change in a way that um, was really positive. Okay, final one. There's one thing teenagers... Teenagers especially are good at spotting a lot of things, but one of those things is hypocrisy, and they don't like it. I don't think any of us want to take advice or boundaries or really communicate with someone we see as a hypocrite who's not walking what they're talking. If we're on our phone all the time, if we stay up way too late scrolling, if we don't go out and do things, if we choose staying indoors and just on our phones, we won't change it in our kids and they won't appreciate our efforts. It will just create resistance because they don't see us doing the same. So we have to hold a mirror up to ourselves and go, ah, this might be really uncomfortable, but maybe I have a problem too because we're not immune. We might have more developed brains. We might have more life experience partly as a result of not having had phones when we were kids. But we're still falling victim to exactly the same strategies these companies are using. So start learning. I've got a pile of books here that I've found the most readable and useful <laughs> when it comes to these topics. So come and have a look at them. Start with stolen focus. Let, this, let tonight be the start of a journey. It doesn't end tonight. It goes... This is what I need to learn more about. This is the start of this journey. What rabbit hole do I go down now so that I can change my behaviour and then through that, change my kids? So that's it for tonight, everyone. Thank you. All right, I think I'll leave those up there as some additional resources, not just for getting kids off screens, but cyber safety and all of those things. Um, and the other one that I wanted to make sure quickly that everyone writes down is the Kids Helpline, 1-800-55-1800. When I was delivering body safety in schools, I 
taught over 3,000 children the number for the kids' helpline. One already knew it. This number is displayed in schools all over the place. This is a good example of how when something's up on the wall, often we pay no attention to it. So our kids need to know about it. They also need to plan as to how they call it. Because if they don't have a landline in their house and their parents just have mobiles, how would they call? What if they're not old enough to web chat or send an email? What do they do? Can they access it at school? Can you install a landline? Do they know when they can call it? This is probably one of the most important resources we can give to not just our younger kids, but to our teenagers as well. So we need to make sure that everyone has access to it. So thank you. Fantastic. Can we give Carolyn another hand? Come on. So good.